What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilczek. This week, it's part two of my conversation with Dr. Jessica Sierk about her research on critical educational work. This is episode 20. We made it to 20 shows. Episode 20 of Untenure Tracks. talk more about my career because this feels like <laughs> it's like my semester my semester summarized <laughs> I've been around for a while and i've noticed some things no i'm just kidding um, but i mean i think that that's i mean i've gone through our training for restorative justice here at my campus and our training for intergroup dialogue and honestly those two spaces have been really transformative for me as a faculty member, I've like found my people across this campus that, I mean, and, and things got real. Like, I know that I cried at least one time in the middle of the restorative justice training because like, you just realize that like, like you're an, like we're all emotional people. We have emotions that we can say we leave them at the door. We can say that we don't bring them to work, but we do. Oh yeah. And, and like we're human and so are students. And so like, I think having that space to, I think, I don't know, our like American aversion to emotion is really harmful. Yes. Um, and I think that like when you, when you show students that it's okay to be emotional, when you bring that emotion to a faculty meeting, like it humanizes the space and then you get to do the work, like, and really do it, not just, like, say you're doing it. <laughs> yeah. You didn't just retweet something and say, like, that's my work for the day. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, like, you're, like, really making changes. I don't know. It's just, I but, mean, people are so great when you actually sit down and talk to them, most of them, anyway. Um, there are exceptions to that rule, I'm sure. Um, but... <laughs> I mean, you start understanding why people are the way they are, and then you can deal with the issues that come up in a more realistic fashion. Yeah. I just, I, I think it's time for academia to kind of, and maybe education overall, to move away from not just like this completely emotionless thing that we're trained to be like these robots right but yes. like in doing that i think you you're finally forced to recognize that objectivity is really a myth right yeah. um <laughs> and, and the sooner the, the sooner people realize that the better <laughs> well and that's the thing is like most of what i teach if not all of what i teach is very political yeah and this idea that teaching can ever be apolitical is 
is putting us at such a disadvantage. Yeah. And I don't think that like, like my students can probably guess exactly who I'm going to vote for just by the way of how I talk about the issues that we talk, we talk about. So we talk about school shootings. Yeah. So they can probably figure out, figure out pretty quickly that I'm against the NRA. Um, we talk about immigration. So they can probably tell that I don't want a border wall. Like we talk about all these things and it's, it would be foolish for me to think that they can't see through to my belief system. Yeah. But like, I don't care that they know those things about me because it's who I am. It's, there's no way it can't affect how I teach. Um, I can listen to their perspective and learn something from them when they don't think the same way that I think. And I don't want a whole bunch of Jessica Sirks running around. Like the world is not ready for that. So I'm not trying to like clone myself <laughs> and like make them in my image. Like that's not my goal, but like, I think that that's also some of the root of like the political division in the country is that we've, lived in this myth of like teachers not revealing their politics. And so then we don't know how to talk about politics with another person. Oh yeah. And like, I think you can say the same thing about race too. Like race is my race is one of my favorite things to talk about because it, it shuts students down so quickly. It's like slamming a door shut in my classroom for whatever reason. And, and so I will show them. Um, so I teach a class that's called sociology of minorities. I didn't ask, I asked to change the title, but, um, they told me that that's the title that the class has. And so that's my class now and it has that title. And so I tell them on the first day that, um, I hate the title. I hate the name of this class. Why do you think I hate the name of this class? And so they try to like, they try to figure it out. Um, they take some shots in the dark. And then I'll I'll say, well, I, I don't like it because minority means either like a statistic, right? Like you're a statistical minority, or it means that you are powerless. And I don't want this class to be like, like so much of what happens in, in at least in sociology and criminology, my backgrounds, mm-hmm. where you talk about race as like, um, you're going to a museum, right? Here, this week, we're going to talk about black people, right? Yeah. And we're going to just observe from afar. Um, I tell them that this is a class on the sociology of oppression. And then they get, like, then it becomes, like, tense, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. And and I'll say, like, did you talk about race ever in high school? No. I mean, no. did you... I mean, how much of the I Have a Dream speech did you watch every year? And how many, yeah, how many times? How many times? 13 times. And so I'm guessing probably by sophomore year, you were just toned out, right? By the time it came on, yeah, yeah. Like, so, you know, you've been afraid to talk about this thing your entire life. You've had teachers who have either been afraid or um, incapable (laughs) Yeah. be very polite about it incapable of talking about it and then you get here and then you wonder why like right. everybody's giving dirty looks to the kid in the MAGA hat yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. no that's like that's right up my alley because 
yeah, the Price of Nice um, book chapter is a lot about how we don't talk about race. Yeah. And the it opens with a quote from a student um, who I called Grace. And she said, like, nobody's going to step on anybody's toes. And we're not going to, like, say, we're not going to ask any questions about immigration because we don't want um, people to think that we're putting them down for coming here. Yeah. So it's like, it's, and um, another student from that same school who I call Eddie, who moved to the U.S. in fifth grade from Guatemala, said that he would have preferred the honesty. He's like, Uh everybody's really polite. It's a super Christian community. Nobody wants to hurt anybody's feelings. He goes, I would have preferred the honesty. Like, just say what you're going to say. Like, say what you're thinking and we'll address it. But, like, if you never get it out in the open, like, that, like, you think I'm a bad person for coming here without documentation, then, like, we're never going to move past that thought process. And so I love that you you call it, like, sociology of oppression, because I bring up oppression day one in my contemporary issues in American education class. Um, I have a worksheet that's, like, it's, like, matching to, like, what type of oppression is this? Is uh-huh. this... Um, vertical, like somebody like with the power, like oppressing somebody who doesn't have the power or whatever, yeah. or is it like horizontal, like um, like the whole like Mexican versus Guatemalan thing that happened in my study, uh-huh. or like internalized, like somebody being like, oh, I couldn't possibly go to college because nobody else in my family has gone to college. Yeah. So like really giving them really allowing them to see the complexity of oppression. Cause I think that like so often they think like, Oh, it's just like one person not being nice to another mm-hmm. and allowing them to see that it can be, it can be like something that you're like doing to yourself because of societal values mm-hmm. that it's not necessarily individual. It's also institutional and it's also societal and cultural. So I, I, I bring up the example of like, uh, building on campus that doesn't have a wheelchair ramp and oh yeah is that oppression and they're like well they didn't mean anything and i'm like okay so does oppression have to be intentional like (laughs) and finally they get to the point where they're like no that's institutional oppression and it's unintentional because like school chose to spend money on something other than a wheelchair ramp, mm-hmm. uh, which I mean, if, and we talk about like the nuances of it. Like, so if we're in a, if we're in a meeting and we're trying to decide how to spend this $10,000 and the wheelchair ramp comes up and we say, Oh no, let's make the Olympic size pool instead. Then that's more intentional than if it never comes up and we just don't think about it because we're all able-bodied people sitting around the table making decisions. Yeah. Different from like applying for a state grant for it and then being denied. Right. Like, or or trying to find ways or you can't get the permits or maybe the construction necessary is more is outside your budget. Like that would be at least a good faith, right? Hopefully good faith. I I love the abilities conversation too, because like I will use myself as an example for these things. Um, and I'm really excited to do it now because I, um, 
I have I have a broken back. I have a broken bone in my back. <laughs> it's okay. It's it's it sucks. I've had it since June probably. Um but I I bring up the ability stuff in that class a lot because I let them pick the readings that they want. And for whatever reason, they, they gravitate towards those. I think it's because they don't have any other opportunity to talk about it in any other class. And so um, uh, we'll talk about like the world being built for healthy people as opposed to everybody else. And they, they kind of get it. Um, and I'll talk about flying on an airplane. Okay. So I am, I am big. <laughs> I am a big, I'm a big man. Uh, I hate flying. I hate flying. I hate airplanes in general. <laughs> um, it's really uncomfortable um, for somebody my height and my size. Um, and so I'll ask them, like, what do you what do you think it's like to be in this body? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and what do you think it's like to navigate the world that way? Um, and then because they're like they're used to. I'll make self-deprecating jokes and stuff in class to kind of like win their favor. <laughs> um, but then once I force them to like think about it, then there's like, oh, like, yeah, I could see how being, you know, six four would be horrible on an airplane. <laughs> like, yeah, it's bad. Like, I can't put my head back on an airplane because they're not built for for tall guys, yeah. right? Um, I also like talking about it in terms of. So by the time this airs, I will have almost two, this is going to come out at the end of January, I think. So I'll be coming up on two and a half years alcohol free. And so talking about like addiction as a type of disability or ability. And what do you think it's like for people who are sober living in a place where you can't throw a rock without hitting like a, a beer ad. They're like, I never thought about that before. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, you should you should think about it. Yeah. Maybe you should you should spend some time thinking about people who don't have things the way that you have them. Yeah. You know. And that came out so strong my first year teaching here. I broke my ankle in February of my first year on the tenure track, and like Super Bowl Sunday, so very early that semester. So I was on crutches. Almost the entire semester. Yeah. I don't work in an ADA-compliant building. Yeah. Um, I couldn't drive myself mm-hmm. because it was my right foot. And it was just like, I mean, even the like handicap-accessible, quote-unquote, um, bathrooms were awful to get in and out of. I mean, I don't even know if they're really handicap-accessible. But, like, the little single-stall, like... Yeah. Rooms like try getting into and out of that with crutches. It's impossible. Oh like, yeah. So just like, I mean, it's it's interesting. Like the whole, what do you think it's like to be in like a different body? Like that's an interesting conversation. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um. And I mean, for for students who have never either been challenged that way or have like maybe their experience to their exposure to this stuff is just like a guilt trip, right? Like asking for maybe a more pragmatic approach. Like what, like what would you, and so I'll tell them like, I don't, I I don't know what it's like to be short. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? I, I, I don't, but I know that the world is not built for short people either. Right. You know? Well, um, and I think that guilt is such an interesting, like, emotion to deal with around conversations with oppression. Like, I teach critical whiteness studies. And, I mean, if there is, oh, yeah, guilt is rampant in uh-huh. that conversation. But it's it's getting people to move beyond that guilt. So, like, somebody called you out for being racist. Like, yeah, it doesn't feel great when, when you get called out for doing something that hurts somebody else. Like, guilt is natural. Yeah. If you, like, stay in that frame of mind, you're never going to get better at being a human. Like... <laughs> if I'm like, if I'm stuck on like how you made me feel when I made you feel bad, yeah, that like I'm in a wallow in self pity, yeah, and I'm never going to treat you any better because I'm not going to learn the lesson. So it's like, okay, so somebody called you called you out for your racism. Like, what are you going to do about it? Like, how are you going to address this situation? So it's it's like I never want somebody to feel like. I don't know, like guilty for anything like that. Cause it just doesn't help. Like yeah. it's like feel the guilt for like a day maximum, depending on the severity. Yeah. And then move on. Yeah. And like think yeah. about it in actionable terms. Yeah. Like go pick up a book, like <laughs> educate yourself. Um, like go join an organization. Um, I don't know. Like, Make an action plan. Like, do something. And, like, honestly, you'll feel better, too. Like, action is a lot better than wallowing. Mm-hmm. For, like, I don't know. It's kind of like when you feel crappy and you have the choice to either sit there and cry about it or you, like, I don't know, go do something active or do something that you enjoy doing. Like, you feel better for, like, taking action instead uh-huh. of just stewing <laughs> same way with racism and sexism and all that stuff. So how does, how much of a challenge? Cause I imagine it's gotta be a challenge, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong. How much of a challenge is it to, to teach this stuff to undergraduates? Um, you know, okay. So I taught multicultural ed at the university of Nebraska when I was a PhD student And so it's been really interesting coming to St. Lawrence um, and teaching similar topics here Mm -hmm. just because the two places are so different in a variety of ways. So Nebraska is very conservative. Um, So that was always a challenge. But the challenging topic there was the sexuality and sexual orientation piece. Yeah. And so I remember having um, students who were part of like a Catholic student group be very, very opposed to the sexual orientation um, unit in multicultural education. Mm-hmm. And these were like prospective teachers. And I'm like, well, you have to, you have to like know that you are going to be teaching gay children. They may not be out. They may not know that they, they may not have the language to like say that they're gay. Yeah. Like some of those kids that you are going to be teaching at whatever level are going to be 
non-heterosexual, there you're going to have somebody whose parents are non-heterosexual. Like, you need to be aware of that. And I guess, it's like, that turns it a little bit into, like, a more pragmatic discussion where it's, like, um, you're going to have to deal with this in your line of work. Yeah. I, I think that always helps when since I teach teachers. But that's less of my gig here uh-huh. to teach teachers. It's more like, I mean, honestly, I am kind of, I feel like I'm more, I'm moving more in the direction of being more of a sociologist or anthropologist or something. Uh-huh. Um, I go to the anthropology annual meeting, but I think I'm secretly a sociologist. Because <laughs> um, you're saying like pure radical social ed stuff. <laughs> just so you uh, know. Yeah. It's oh. very sociological. Yeah. Um, but so I think that it's, it's been weird going from a very large university where I didn't have as many personal relationships with built with students. I'd see them for one class and I'd never see them again yeah. to a place where I've had students who have taken five classes with me here. Um, so that makes it a lot easier to teach these topics because we have a growing understanding of each other as people, mm-hmm. which I think it's really necessary. It's really hard to do this work in one semester yeah. with students so if I can see them over the course of a few semesters and see where they're growing, um, I think that's really helpful. Um, I would say that the campus I'm on now is a lot more progressive than what I was used to before. So, but I mean, it's, it's interesting though, because a lot of times it's like talking the talk and not necessarily being able to walk the walk, but like, at least they, they, they come to me and they, if I throw out the term cisgender and I think times are changing too, right? Yeah. Like you hear the term cisgender way more now than you did five years ago. Oh, for sure. So it's like, I think that like they're a lot more educated on the language that is used. Although, I mean, I have had to like, I know my first semester here, I had to correct somebody who used the term he, she, and I had to correct somebody who, use the term anchor baby. Uh-huh. Like, so there's still a little bit of it, but I think it's getting less and less at least here. Um, yeah. So I, th- I think it's just, but I mean, it's, it's tough, but I do a lot of journaling assignments. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that pedagogically has helped a lot because I require them to pick out three quotes from each reading put them in a Google doc and um, write a personal reaction to each quote from, from, so each day that there's a reading due, Mm -hmm. three quotes, three reactions. And then I go in every couple weeks and read their stuff and I comment and they have to comment back. So it's kind of like this back channel dialogic assignment. Yeah. I feel like a lot of times if there's something that they maybe are too embarrassed to ask in front of, the whole class, like whether it's like some like stereotype that they need debunked or something yeah. like that, we can do it that way instead of so it actually gets addressed. Yeah. Do you find but, yourself having to correct them on the difference between saying people of color and colored people? Because that's one uh, that I've had to do a lot. Yes and no. I actually just 
had that come up with a family member earlier this semester. Yeah. Um, I feel like that they're pretty good about it, but I guess I do, I do see a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of like other things that I've had to deal with. I mean, really sometimes we get into the weeds with stuff. Like I remember, so I've only taught my critical whiteness studies class once. Mm -hmm. Um, so far I'll teach it again in the fall and, um, fall 2020. Yep. Um, but I remember kind of getting into conversations with students about the use of the word normal. Uh huh. And so there was a student who wrote about her family. They used to have a normal turkey for Thanksgiving, but now they have to have a halal turkey. Okay. And so I picked up on that and I was just like, okay, so for your like it's like her cousin married a muslim man yeah um i was like for that cousin's husband Uh what would a normal turkey be to him yeah a halal turkey yeah and your non-halal turkey would be abnormal yeah and so this idea of normality as something that is a laden with value (laughs) like you're saying that like anything that is not what you have experienced is somehow less than or like weird or like, I don't know. It's just abnormal when you, I mean that cause that's the opposite of normal. Right. Yep. Um, and so it's value laden. It's, it sets up like just a lot of, there's just a lot of unpacking that needs to happen there. And I don't know that she completely bought my argument, but like I also had students in that class say, well, there's nothing special about me. I had a normal upbringing. Uh-huh. And I'm like, okay, I can guess what that means based on knowing the culture of the U.S. Yeah. So here's – and I would just tell them, I was like, so did you have a white picket fence? Uh-huh. Did you have a dog? Do you have a sibling? Um, your parents were together. Um, like they were both, well, your dad was employed. Your mom stayed at home. Like those are the things that make me think normal upbringing. Yeah. And they, well, actually, no, my mom worked too. And I'm like, well, to me, maybe that's abnormal. Like, like, so it doesn't, it relies on me having a certain knowledge of your worldview that I don't have. Yeah. So like you're actually not telling me anything about yourself when you say that you're normal because uh-huh. my idea of normal and your idea of normal are not the same based on even me being from the Midwest and you being from the East coast. Yeah. Like, so I'm like, it, it's in a way meaningless. It's a meaningless word. Yeah. You can say typical and like that has a different connotation because that, but that goes back to like the whole statistics kind of yeah. thing that you brought <laughs> up about minority and yep. <laughs> so I don't know. We get into the weeds sometimes, but like I love it. I had a statistically average upbringing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was in, I was in the mode. <laughs> I had a modal upbringing. I had a modal upbringing. <laughs> yeah, but it's just like yeah, it, it relies a lot on. 
context and so to break them out of that because I mean I have never been so frustrated as like well probably have been more frustrated but like I was in um South Africa with a bunch of other grad students when I was a grad student and people kept saying that they were driving on the wrong side of the road and (laughs) I was so frustrated the whole time because I was like there's nothing wrong about it it's the law (laughs) yeah (laughs) like they're doing it right like it's wrong to you because of where you're from but like there's no reason why one side of the road is better than the other to drive on (laughs) following the law of the country in which you are driving you're doing it right yeah it's a it's a left twix right twix (laughs) exactly exactly like we can argue about it all day but it's the same thing it's the stupid road (laughs) yeah exactly um so the last question that i i have you i'm I'm trying to remember to ask this to people who are doing work that's outside of my own um and it's purely for my own curiosity so do with it what you will um the one thing that i encounter a lot in teaching classes on crime is that students come in with all kinds of of myths that they've learned from like all the law and order and csi marathons they've binged that i have to spend like a long time sometimes years <laughs> trying to to disprove or change their minds about. So I'm just curious, like, do students, do undergrads coming into education have, like, do they have myths about what they think teaching is going to be like that you find that you have to try to have, like, that first day, like, come to Jesus talk? <laughs> like, this yeah. isn't what teaching is at all kind of thing? Um. So, I mean, teaching is especially this way because... I mean, everybody's been in a classroom, right? Yeah. And so everybody has experienced the receiving end of teaching. um, And they've seen teachers at work for, like, firsthand for years, right? Yep. Like, more than a decade by the time they get, get to me. So I think that... I think they have a, they have a lot. And, I mean, there's there's been a lot written about about this. I think, um, who was it that wrote, I'm totally blanking. I should know this person's name, but anyway, um, I think that they think it's, it's easy. Yeah. And I think that they think that anybody can do it. Um, and that there's really no skill set involved and it's just, I mean, and the, it, there's the famous or infamous, phrase those who can do those who can't teach um and so we've actually been really trying hard in our department to kind of break that like easy a stereotype because it's not that way in our department anymore i think at one point maybe it was maybe it wasn't that predates my time so i can't really say but um like our classes are hard they're reading intensive there's theory, there's, um, there's a lot to consider. It's, it's the whole complex problems, complex solutions thing. Um, and so I don't know that there's like specific, Oh, I know one. Oh, I got it. I was just talking to a student this morning about this learning styles, (laughs) learning styles. Oh my God. Learning styles. Every undergrad that I have had, is obsessed with the idea of learning styles. Will you please tell me that learning styles don't exist because I, they, I 
They don't exist. And in fact, I'm going, to teach, <laughs> I'm going to teach a new article that came out this year um, in my class in the spring about how they were started. It's um, the, the last name is Phallus, I think. F-A-L-L-A-C-E. Um, and it's about the ethnocentric origins of learning styles. They started in the 60s as a way to address quote-unquote culturally deficient students, namely African-American students. And then by the time they made it to the mainstream um, and were adapted for white middle-class students, um, all of the racist coding in the language got dropped. And so nobody realizes that we're actually perpetuating a very racist ideology whenever we talk about learning styles. And so I just had a student in my office who said, well, I'm a visual learner. And I was like, <laughs> you may prefer to learn visually. Yeah. You may really like visual aids, but you are, there's no such thing as a visual learner. Like you learn in every way manageable, imaginable. Uh-huh. Like you learn by doing, but you're not, you're saying that you're not kinesthetic, you're visual. So you must not learn by doing, but I, as one of your former teachers know that you do in fact learn that way because I saw it. <laughs> so learning styles, I think, is like the biggest, the biggest one. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, but everybody loves them so much because it's so neat and tidy. It's like astrology. Oh, it is. <laughs> so- I do love astrology. I am a Virgo, but. <laughs> I'm also Aquarius rising, which oh, also yeah. Does that mean a little bit of me. But yeah. like, but yeah, it's like, <laughs> but you take it with the, you take it with a grain of salt. Like, <laughs> I, I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. And I love that kind of stuff. Like I love pop psychology, like Myers Briggs, like give, Give it to me. Like, I love it. Uh-huh. Um, I think I'm an INFJ. Yeah. I but it, it's just like, it's just, I think that like, if it helps you learn about yourself. It, if it helps you become more self-aware, like go for it, but don't put all of your eggs in that basket. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I, that's what like, has annoyed me so much about learning styles and seeing students come in and say the reason that they didn't do well in a class is because it didn't, it didn't meet or I or the instructor did not teach to a way that met their learning styles. And I, I would just want to be like, um, what learning style do you think Socrates had? (laughs) Right? Like for, for millennia, (laughs) human beings have been learning things. Without this witchcraft about. Yeah. Well, and I think that it's a, there's a different conversation that's a little bit more philosophically deep that we could have um, with those students about, like, differentiation mm-hmm. and, like, how the instructor either did or did not differentiate for students. And I think, like, I teach differentiation uh-huh. um, as one of my certification courses. And... I totally believe in differentiation. So it's like if the instructor only lectures 
the whole semester. Like, yeah. It's unreasonable to assume that every student is going to learn that way. But that's it has less to do with learning styles and more to do with like our brain's ability to like hone in on novel yeah. situations. Your class is boring. <laughs> so it's like well and it has a lot to do with like yeah, like attention span. Yeah. It's like I can't sit and listen to somebody ramble for an hour and a half, but if they like have me turn to a partner and talk for a little bit, it breaks up the monotony and I can rejoin the lecture. Yeah. Or like I don't know, like I think that you do learn by doing a lot. But yeah, I don't know. But the, the point the point of it all is to say that like there's this myth that students have picked up on that they are incapable of learning <laughs> if it's not like if it's not uh, adjusted to the style and that probably faculty have picked up on that say, well, my way is the best way and anything that, that does not fall outside of this very limited spectrum of like pedagogical behaviors is too radical and is therefore a waste of everybody's time, which is just not true. Right. Right. I would rather it be like, I would rather we adhere to like variety of the spice of life. Yeah. Like that to me is more conducive to good teaching is that like, are you switching up what you're doing? Like, A, it makes it a lot more fun, I think, as the instructor to like do something different every now and then. Like it keeps me engaged as the instructor, which I think the more engaged the instructor is in the activity of teaching, the more engaged the students are going to be in the activity of learning. But like, so I think that, yeah, the variety is the spice of life is my my um, callback to learning styles. And I think that's a perfect spot to end our discussion. Oh, thank you, Jessica, so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So, I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had over the last 19 episodes are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come online, come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.